The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! the third men podcast this is a jack white history program and i'm your co-host paul kaminsky and i'm your co-host james kaminsky welcome back we've got a great episode for you today i'm really excited about this one it's one of the biggest gets we've ever gotten one of the biggest gets we've ever gotten we are very happy and proud to announce that we will be conducting an extended interview with none other than karen elson who listeners to the show and fans of third man records will know as a former Third Man Records recording artist, releasing the full-length album The Ghost Who Walks in 2010. And her follow-up album, Double Roses, was released in 2017. Now, aside from being a musician and songwriter and singer, Karen is, of course, known for her modeling career. She is a genuine supermodel, and I'm going to go ahead and say probably the only supermodel that we'll ever get on this show. I don't know why another supermodel would come on here. But we're pleased as punch to have one. I'm pretty sure Jack Lawrence is secretly a supermodel as well. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. He could be like a hand model yeah. or something. He does have beautiful hands, Jack Lawrence. That man is beautiful everything. Who are we kidding? He's a beautiful, beautiful man. Did you know Karen Elson was female model of the year in, I want to say, 1997? I had no idea. There's a clip online, and it's from the VH1 Fashion Awards, and... She's got a very 90s look going on, but I guess she was helping to define what the 90s look was going to be. And actually, it's funny, the look really is more like the 2000s, and so I think she was actually ahead of the curb. The weird part about the clip, she was presented to it by none other than television's Norm MacDonald, who really had no business being on that stage talking about any of that stuff. Yeah, I modeled my fashion after his 
his appearance yeah. on there, which was mostly just Jenko jeans. He wore a lot of Jenko jeans. Norm Macdonald, known for his Jenko jeans. Yeah, big skater, that one. Yeah, loved him. Ah, uh, go. Uh, you know, like a, it's like a little car. It's like a little car to skateboard. Like, ah, like a little car. He probably has a podcast that brings in like millions of listeners yeah. and stuff. No, that's fine. Uh- <laughs> Norm Macdonald. I can't tell you how many times I've seen you on Saturday Night Live and laughed. Oh, yeah? Karen Elson also, of course, uh, was married to Jack White for a time and was there for all kinds of cool events like the White House performance where Jack played uh, Mother Nature's son for Paul McCartney. That was really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we just got tons of questions for Karen. We're big fans of her music, and she's also got a new book out. Her book is called The Red Flame. It's an autobiography with tons of photos and stories and stuff from her life as a model and musician. And boy, I just had so much fun doing actually some research because I always loved her music, but I didn't really know much about her modeling. And I had so much fun looking into it. So Karen is a multi-talented person, and we're just thrilled to have her on the show here today. That's right. Yeah. So James, that's really going to be a lot of fun. But before we get to that. Is there something we should stop doing? It's a new segment, I think, again. (laughs) Man, all right. Um, I should say to the people at home, we actually came up with another new segment this season, but then we had to move a bunch of episodes around, so you haven't actually heard that one yet. Mm. So for you at home, this is the first new segment we're coming up with for this season. And the segment's called, You've Got a New Segment. Oh, that's good. (laughs) It's like a coincidence. It's like a... It's like, oh, isn't that fun? Like a curiosity or like like a, a link between episodes. What, do you, what, what would we call that? Uh, let's see here. I can, hold on. <laughs> it's like we talked about one thing in one episode and then another thing happened in another episode and it's like a fun coincidence. Uh, You've got a reaction now. <laughs> um, how about two against fun (laughs) (laughs) now make it that make it that (laughs) all right this is our segment about coincidences called two against fun (laughs) i'm gonna still try and come up with one but i really want that to be it That's all a coincidence. There are degrees of coincidence. No, there are only coincidences. So Two Against Fun is the segment of the show that we're just starting now, which is about coincidences. (laughs) And so this is interesting because this ties directly into last episode and this episode. So last episode, we were talking with Josh Aiken about the kills. Mm -hmm. And Josh told us the very fun little tidbit that actress Julianne Moore studied Alison Mossart of The Kills and The Dead Weather for her portrayal of the character that I guess was a rock star that she was portraying in the movie What Maisie Knew. And I think that was 2012, Mm -hmm. right? So this was news to us. Wild news, but yeah, insane. Yeah, as you heard last episode. Now, here's where things get funny. And this is the part that's against the fun. Actress Julianne Moore also 
two years later portrayed a i think a doctor who got alzheimer's disease in the movie still alice in 2014 Mm -hmm. in which karen elson contributed a song to that soundtrack called if i had a boat so we went from zero connections to Julianne Moore, except for the fact that she punched a velociraptor, and we liked that. <laughs> we did like that. That was fun. To this beautiful connection with these two films that were released in subsequent order, and they just so happen to be in the two episodes that are in subsequent order here. This is this is a big coincidence, James. It's a huge coincidence. curious how a velociraptor will also enter into this conversation i think we gotta now find out how many velociraptors karen has punched i mean let's add that to the questions list paul all right there's still time (laughs) so anyway that's been a segment for the show called two against fun Do you really want to have fun? All right, James. What say you we head into this Karen Elson extended interview, huh? Yeah, let's huh? do it. Let's let's talk to Karen Elson. Karen friggin' Elson, let's do it. What's she doing talking to us? Why is she Karen? talking to us? What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Karen. Hello. Hi, and so sorry, by the way, it just took me a minute. I was on a parent-teacher Zoom, and you know <laughs> how those go. <laughs> no <laughs> a problem. A lot longer than you imagine. <laughs> yeah. Boy, they're making you do that early in the morning. My goodness. <laughs> it's all good. It's, well, it's 10, 10, 20. Yeah, I, start, I, got on, I jumped on there at like 9.40. It's fine. Right, right. It's all good. I've been up since 5 a.m. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, shocking. It's- <laughs> I'm an early riser. I wake up, get my breakfast, ride my Peloton, take the kids, well, one of the kids to school, and then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Paul and I both have uh, very young children, so uh, we're forced to be early risers as well. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I have to get up early. I need a minute before they wake up to just yeah. kind of get a moment. <laughs> yeah, center yourself. Yeah, I get it. All those things. <laughs> we're fortunate in that we didn't have to deal with the homeschooling and stuff during the pandemic so i i, I don't know if empathize or sympathize is the right one yeah. but one of those for you I, it uh... was interesting the homeschool i mean it definitely you know both my kids schools were pretty phenomenal about making the transition online as easy as possible but you know it's always right there's always just those many moments where i'm like googling like long division and <laughs> fractions and kind of <laughs> i'm like Oh no, I haven't had to do this in a long time. <laughs> oh my god. So get the answer. 
closer. And then I had to figure out with yeah. my kids or with my son primarily, like how the hell do we show how we got this answer? Wow. <laughs> Unintended pandemic consequences is another little sub form. Hey, I, I learned something. I learned, yeah. a, I learned a lot about ancient Greece all over again, which is fantastic. <laughs> and I learned some things about fractions. So there we go. <laughs> I'm going to pitch this to you. I'm going to pitch this to you and just take it for what it is. But I am going to need some credit if you take it. But I'm saying, all right, next album reacquaintance with long division is a great title is all it's a good title how about show your work that's a better one. <laughs> show your work is a much better title that one. i like that show like your that work better. you yeah. know I, I should probably do a kid's album just for like frustrated parents yeah. or something i mean karen are you writing this down this is gold this is gold right here I mean, you know, actually, I think, you know, my manager, Dallas, may be on the line. So I'm like, hey, Dallas, Frustrated yeah. Parents Kids album on top of other things. <laughs> I wrote it down. Yeah. Okay. So, oh, my God. So funny. So, Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Not as all. We, we just talked about, you know, you have two small Ooh. kids and... And uh, you've just got a million things well, going small. on right now. My son is as tall as me now. So there's, oh my there's zero tiny in these guys anymore although my daughter scarlet she's like pint size she's a mini <laughs> we you know we always call her a mini uh she's a Teresa gillis so i'm sure you've heard you know seen pictures of jack's mother yeah, yeah. before um the formidable Teresa gillis and <laughs> scarlet her middle name is Teresa, and it's so funny she is literally you know a, a, a formidable you know mini Teresa. so there you yeah. go oh, <laughs> or so as pint size as Teresa gillis Right. And I guess Henry got the height. Henry, both, of, yeah. both of you are very tall, right? Henry is, is like I said, he's taller than me now. And my God, I, you know, <laughs> I was over at Jack's on Halloween and I made them stand next to each other. And Henry's definitely catching up to Jack. I, I <laughs> venture to guess he may be. Henry may be taller than Jack one day. We shall see. My God, <laughs> my God. If you don't mind me asking, what's Henry listening to these days? What, what kind of music's Henry got on? This is, a, this, this is a good question. What is Henry listening to? <laughs> Henry is a man, he's a mysterious young man. I mean, he's a very elusive, like in his own world. So Henry, when I take him to school, he's always got music on. I have no idea what he's listening to. Wow. There's definitely like soundtracks and like, theme songs to certain things. There was a moment where Henry, when he was younger, he was really obsessed with Bill Gates and he really loved all, he would try and learn on the piano, like Microsoft jingles, which was so abstract <laughs> wow. and random and genius that he would, you know, it's like, you know, when you would, uh, he would know random jingles from, <laughs> oh, this was Microsoft, blah, 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 version <laughs> this. And I'm like, okay, who knows what is Henry's really into? Amazing. Well, I think uh, James and I, as you can see, we're both wearing Beatles shirts here. So we embraced our parents' music and we know that you did at least to a degree as well. And Yeah. Uh, yeah. Each kid, I think, Scott and Henry, they've been exposed to enough music, obviously, clearly throughout <laughs> their life, where yeah. I think they know what the difference between something that's just rough and something that is like interesting, interesting, yeah. easy, but at the same time, they're kids and they'll develop their own interests and their own things that they're into and in a way i think it's testament to jack and may i say myself that just to encourage them to be themselves you know what i mean and yeah. not sort of infiltrate too much of our stuff upon them yeah that's the difficulty is whether or not you want to force 
your tastes on your children and I'm trying my best, just trying yeah. my best not to do that right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's not easy. Trust me, especially if there's moments where your kids are listening to stuff and you go, Oh God. But right. thankfully for Scarlett and Henry, we haven't had too much of that. So thank yeah. God, you know, well, speaking of your own stuff going on, you've got just a zillion things happening, it seems, all the time, <laughs> you and Jack both. But uh, first of all, we'd like to congratulate you on the release of your new book, The Red Flame, that's written by you and thank you uh, this past October 13th on Rizzoli. That's amazing. It's an autobiography, a memoir. Growing up, you've had such an interesting life and you were thrust into the spotlight at such a formative age that... Young age, you know, just, yeah. I think your journey would be interesting and informative to a lot of people. So congratulations. It's great. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It was definitely, you know, akin to sort of making an album in a way where it's a real labor of love and you have to, you know, there's many hills and valleys in making all these things. But I think ultimately, you know, I didn't just want it, the book to be just an anthology of my photographs, which I've been so lucky to do, but really see behind these things, you know, see the stories behind all these pictures and kind of gather up, the vulnerability and things, which I think that is very much my thing anyway, you know, is that what I may appear on a picture or or in a magazine that I'm a much more sort of emotional and kind of um, multifaceted sort of person, you know, and I think that's always been something even music wise that I've always aspired to kind of communicate, you know, is that it, it's not just you know, I think I said this with the, my first album with The Ghost Who Walks, that it wasn't a vanity project. Like, it took me years to make my first album. I was working on not just The Ghost Who Walks, but I was working on music for many years before that, but I didn't have the confidence <laughs> to yeah. do it. And and I think it's important for people to know that too, because we're all, at the end, I'm just a big music fan. You know, I love music so much that just to even put an album out into the world because I'm such a music fan, I'm like, oh my God, can I do it if it's just mediocre? My biggest fear was was that I thought people may just think that Jack kind of pushed me into the studio and said, this is what you're doing. And that was that, which wasn't necessarily the case. He just gave me the confidence to do it. The ghost You know, he was the one saying, oh, please, you know, uh, get over all these like, like these insecurities. You'll never make anything if you, if you keep thinking like that. And that's one thing I admire about him, which is very rare for musicians, I would say. Like, mm -hmm. you know, from what I've seen of Jack creating, it's a very um, it, it's like he wakes up in the morning and, and goes into the studio and just gets it done like i've never once seen jack go oh is, is this song like bad is this awful oh i can't do this i suck like I, I, and it's not like jack's even doing the opposite he's not the opposite either where he's like this is the best thing ever he's just practical right 
Yeah, driven, intensely driven. Yeah, intensely driven, but also very practical about it. It's like how he approaches upholstery and anything that he does. <laughs> he just does it. <laughs> he just does it. And it's, yeah, it's, and it's admirable. Sure. It's tough putting out any kind of artwork, especially on such a massive scale, because it always puts you in a position of vulnerability because you're sharing this thing that you made. And it can be overwhelming. So I'm so happy that you were able to record it because that album is amazing. And uh, I'm happy you were able to put out this book because the book looks gorgeous. Thank you. I really appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny, we were aware of you as a musician before we were aware of you as a model, which is kind of interesting because you had this wild you had this whole (laughs) career (laughs) and you were extremely successful still ongoing career and then but it really you know look i mean look at us first of all but like we didn't we didn't we weren't aware until (laughs) the music came out you know what i mean so um, of course and that's totally and trust me i have people who know (laughs) me as a model and have no idea that i've ever made albums and then there are people who go oh you also are in magazines and and oh there you are on the side of a bus or something and I and I find that honestly it all of it makes me laugh you know because I appreciate when somebody sees something that I do irrespective of what it is and if they feel kind of a kinship towards it that's all that matters you know Mm -hmm. and and at the end of the day it's it's not about like for me I don't know I don't tend to quantify success as like the outward stuff you know what I mean it's like success is the things that are in my heart that I I am so lucky to get to do be it occasionally it's wow I I can't believe I've gone and done this beautiful shoot or the beautiful feeling that you get when a record comes out you know or releasing a book I don't like to limit my imagination I've been saying this about COVID it's been a really challenging time it's been such a difficult time for so many people but the one thing COVID cannot rob any of us of is an imagination. And I have to keep telling myself that every single day. Like this is a prime opportunity for anybody who is creative is to exercise that muscle more, however that manifests. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To that point, this show has been a saving grace for us throughout the year too, just, and the other shows we do just because, yeah, we need that creative outlet. We need to keep putting it out. We're fortunate in that our careers are both artistically linked. So we're able to express ourselves that way as well. But I find it incredibly inspiring to talk to people such as yourself, who are artists who are dealing with things on a much bigger scale. And just to see how you're operating through it can be inspiring, especially with a book like this. It's funny, I love your music and I've come to know your modeling career. But uh, one of the things I felt like I could relate the most on is that my wife is also from England. And so whenever I hear, watch interviews where you're talking about things, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I remember she talks about that. I think you're more from the north. Yeah, I'm from Manchester. Right. Oldham, right? Is that right? Oldham. Yeah, just it's a little town, a little industrial town north of Manchester. Yeah. Grim. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I was wondering about Oldham. These places we grow up. They tend to kind of live in us in a lot of ways. And there was a wonderful video, I think it was for Vogue that you did, where you returned to your hometown and stuff. I was wondering, what, if you had to put a finger on it, what would you say lives in you from Oldham? Whether it be like a quirk or a habit or like a life lesson or what about Oldham and the Manchester area lives on in you? Oh, I think the first thing that comes to mind is a sense of humor and, (laughs) and sort of always a groundedness. So anybody from the North, I mean, it's, you know, there's an expression in England, it's grim up North. And 
because especially where I grew up, I would say it rains almost three quarters of the time. It's also a very hardy sort of place to grow up. I mean, it's my family grew up working class, grew up struggling for money. You know, the heater was always turned down in the winter to save money. We're always scrimping and scraping to get by. And I don't know. I mean, maybe this is a big part of my father. Anybody who knows my dad knows that my dad is just like a ray of sunshine. He is such a funny, brilliant human. And thankfully, thank God, I've got a lot of him in my personality where you just choose to see the sunny side of life. Even if the wind knocks you down, you choose to see the sunny side and you choose to laugh instead of be negative. And I think that is a collective mentality of the North. It's almost like part sarcastic as well. I actually have a really <laughs> funny memory of being in Blackpool, which is a Northern English beach town. But by beach, don't think it's anything sort of glamorous or special. It's freezing cold. The beach <laughs> itself is kind of pebbly and grim. You know, it's been known for its seawater to not be the cleanest. And I actually remember it was, I think when the White Stripes were on tour, I was there and my dad came to the show and my dad stayed up all night with the Greenhorns and he was very proud of himself. And he said, I out Greenhorn the Greenhorns because he <laughs> stayed up. He drank them to he drank them to the floor. Let's put it that way. I wow. love that. I love that. And from what I hear about Jack Lawrence, that's tough. Oh, no, oh sweet, sweet LJ. No, it was, just, it was a, a very comical moment. But the, the thing I remember clearly is that in the sort of hotel lobby were two old English ladies and Jack being very polite when, oh, beautiful day it is today. And the two old ladies looked at him and went, is it? <laughs> <laughs> and started complaining. And I, I remember Jack being like, wow, I've never seen anything like this before. And I'm like, well, this is Northern England for you. Like it, it's, it's like a dark sense of humor, if you know yeah. what I mean. There, there's, that's what the north of England has brought in me. It's a toughness, it's a tenacity, but it's also like, yes, a dark sense of humor, but I will choose to laugh any day over choosing to cry. Yeah. Yeah. That's an excellent, excellent answer. Especially these days. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like New Jersey, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm not. <laughs> we, we I, both... think it, I think, you know, it feels like Atlantic City. So if you've ever been yeah. to Atlantic City, Blackpool is sort of akin. <laughs> Yeah. to Atlantic City. It's kind of, it's, there's this definite misery to it, but yeah. you know, you go for a reason, I guess. Okay, write this down, voice memo, definite misery. That's another good one. I'm just saying, <laughs> these are all gold. I'm sounds just... like, it, it sounds like a Smith song. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, well, I, uh, if I ever visit Blackpool, I eagerly anticipate uh, seeing all of the Philadelphians that are flocking there for their summer vacations. So. <laughs> um, but uh, so funny. we know that your musical taste is pretty well-rounded because we heard that you were in the Kylie Minogue fan club and uh, to, <laughs> to spinning Beatles albums with your father. Was there any music that was formative to you growing up in Oldham? Well, my dad had great music taste. So my dad was a massive, is a massive music fan. And growing up, driving in his car, he would have, you know, I'm old enough to remember cassettes. So my dad would always have cassettes playing in the car from the Beatles to Bob Dylan. Um, there was one guy, his name was Gene Pitney that my dad loved. When you're young and so in love as we 
love sort of Frank Sinatra, Elvis, Eric Clapton. I mean, a Deep Purple. You know, he he was all about those bands and played them nonstop. And I spent a lot of time driving through the English countryside with my dad singing his heart out. And you know, there's a moment when you're a kid where kind of annoys you as well you know you want to listen to the boy band but you can't but as I've got older in life especially when I hit my 20s and started really discovering you know late teens early 20s where music exploded in my mind and I appreciated the education that my dad gave me just through those early days but there's a real brilliant moment in my family's folklore where my dad is in a this Beatles book. It's like a, you know, pictures of the Beatles in their early days. And the Beatles were playing in my town of Oldham, obviously one of their first concerts there. And there's a picture of my dad at the front row, just wow. beaming, smiling from ear to ear while the Beatles are performing. And my dad, and I'm not sure if this is true, if it's just, you know, a story that dads <laughs> tell and gets more and more inflated as the years go on. But my dad told me that he had a date that night and he got to the concert and they only had one ticket left. And he was like, sorry, Beatles come before women. <laughs> very, you know, very misogynistic. Sure. Um, but sure. clearly my dad, um, he was like, I'm sorry. He was like, it was the first date. He's like, I'd love the Beatles far longer than I'd kn- known her. So, it, but it was the way my dad tells it over the years, it gets more and more inflated. But there is the picture of my dad in this Beatles book. And it's honestly... Mm-hmm it's so wonderful and my dad was such a Beatles fan so obviously that has stayed with me throughout these years how could it not yeah Liverpool not far from Oldham so it makes sense that your dad would have seen some of those nope no and you really and you also understand you know I think how so many of those bands they really captured the mood of the United Kingdom as well during those days I mean you listen to the Beatles, you know, my dad loves the Trogs as well. And yeah, I love the Trogs. Loves the Rolling Stones and whatnot. But that music really captured sort of the post World War II era and the generation of young people who were sort of striving for levity from those, obviously growing up, being young, very young in those difficult times. And even with the songwriting, you know, between Lennon and McCartney, you just you get that sort of wistfulness and. I, I mean, come on, talk about an education, though, with my dad. It was, it was just, <laughs> I treasure those memories. I really do. Now, when I reflect, I treasure those memories of being in the car with him. It, it just is it, so attached to so many fond memories for me. I want to spend my life with Growing up with that kind of music, me and Paul as well, it's one of those things where I could hear a Beatles song. And even though like 
our parents sold our family home like years and years ago. But like if I right. hear a Beatles song, like I still I'm kind of like transported back to that kind of. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, I can hear my dad singing his heart out. Yeah. I mean, that's like I, <laughs> certain songs. I literally can hear my dad bellowing in the car, me and my sister cringing. <laughs> now, can I ask which? Is there any in particular that come to mind? Oh, Was he out there um, singing Maxwell's Silver Hammer? My, my dad. Oh my, that would be incredible. No, my dad really loves sort of, I think the, uh, the, like the earlier, you know, I want to hold your hand, hard day's night. I mean, it just. They're fun. They're fun songs. No, they're, and they're beautiful, beautifully written, like gorgeous. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, come on. Even when I hear a song, like a modern song today, you can really hear when the Beatles production has been influenced, you know, yeah. within the song and the songwriting structure. The Beatles, I think, songwriting wise as we all know they are geniuses but they created i think almost a new way of writing songs and producing music as well like all these fine layers from the string arrangements to the vocal harmonies to the way they would rhyme things to the way the drums even you know with ringo you, you can hear it in so much modern music still to this day how those techniques still apply and kind of change the playing field completely. Yeah. I listen to Elliot Smith and I hear, you know, especially, you know, Elliot Smith, you can just hear God bless him and God rest his soul, but you can hear those beautiful sort of Lennon McCartney sort of song, you know, those, the song structure, it's just so heartfelt. The melody in those is very, uh, right. uh, Right. Inspired by it. For sure. I can hear similar things in your songwriting too, Karen. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Elliot Smith because I'm actually now, now that you say that, I'm hearing some connection between your music and Elliot Smith in that way. But Wow, what a compliment. Can I have that on my tombstone? <laughs> <laughs> no, because it's a similar approach. And, and, and by that, I mean like Elliot Smith, there's usually always some, there's a sweetness to the melody and there's a sweetness actually to even some of the lyric, but underneath there's this feeling as though there is a lurking sarcasm that could strike at any moment or some kind of venom or something that's there. Uh, oh, yeah. But it's not deployed just to do it. It's deployed because it's coming from a real place of emotional meaning to Elliot Smith. And I hear the same thing in your records. Right. I mean, there's some songs of yours that I listen to and I go, oh, this is like very, how do you sleep? Oh, my goodness. Like you got, <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of like uh, the way you use strings almost too is, is in a similar way to how maybe John Lennon would have done that. But what I wanted to ask about is your approach to songwriting. We know, and it's detailed in your book, The Red Flame, again, available now, that you've gone through, you know, some harrowing, tough experiences in your time growing up. And I wondered if any of those experiences, much like the happy memories of Oldham and stuff, do those help inform your songwriting when you're writing a song when you're done with it, do you think, oh, God, I think I was writing about that? Yes. I mean, I can give you a specific example is the song Stolen Roses on my first album on The Ghost Two Walks. I started writing that song. So, you know, very the chords, obviously, they seem to pop up first. And then the lyrics, sometimes it's like a lightning strike. Like, wow, I didn't realize I needed to purge this memory. So Stolen Roses very much is about sort of growing up in Northern England and being um, bullied, misunderstood, feeling like an outcast. And when I was young, I used to get in trouble from the neighbors because I would always go and pick their roses and come bring them back to my mother. And or I would take the petals, the rose petals, and me and my neighbor, Joanne Frost, we would 
try and make rose perfume or bite very badly. You know, we just crushed the roses. We thought perfume was crushed roses and water, which would eventually smell horrible. But <laughs> but, it, but it was always like my, my escape as a kid, you know, I was quite feral as a child. My parents would just open the door at like eight o'clock in the morning. And if we came back in the house before lunch, we were cast out again. So my childhood was, a lot of it was spent outside and there were certain areas in my neighborhood that were a little bit more rural or, like I said, the neighbor's gardens where I would go and steal their roses. <laughs> that was my sort of solace in a way, was going and getting lost in those places. Yeah. So Stolen Roses, again, it was like the subconscious almost wrote it and the lyrics just poured out of me. And then I realized, wow, as I'm writing the song, that this clearly is a song about my experience as a child and feeling misunderstood that things are happening that feel out of my control and I go where the stolen roses grow simple as that there once was a time when I was a girl that darkness hung in my sky I was old before I learned to be young Stone cold till I learned how to cry And the weeds in the ground had grew up through my skin Forsaking a lonesome girl's heart I would go where the stolen roses grow To forget that I had fell apart The song was about my childhood. So yes, there's certain things in songwriting that sometimes happen without even your control. You'll suddenly write a lyric down and you'll go, wow, this really is my subconscious speaking to me right now about a situation or time period where I need to go back maybe and work on this a little bit more or maybe the act of sort of purging and making amends with this period of time is by just writing a song. That's beautiful. I, I love that song. I'm happy you're able to work those out in that way. That's great. Absolutely. It's always yeah. been, that's always been a very powerful thing for me is just, Again, and some of these things, it's so funny because with some, sometimes these universal truths come out, like longing, desire, heartache, feeling misunderstood. I mean, I would, I would say these are a lot of like common themes for anybody who's mm -hmm. trying to write a song. I mean, it's, it's all just trying to comprehend the human condition at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of things you've done in your youth, you were signed to a modeling agency extremely young. At 15, you lived in London, Paris, and Tokyo by the time you were 17. What does that kind of perspective do to a teenager? That's, that is nuts. <laughs> yeah, well, I think in some ways that did, it, it had its many positives and it had its downsides too. So, you know, I have teenage kids now and they'll be hell to pay if they're leaving the house before they're 18 years old and have graduated high school and, and all those things. So, but I lived in a different experience. I had a different life experience, you know, and the opportunities say my kids have, I didn't have. So for me to become a model age 15 and to start traveling the world, in one sense, I was lucky that I was still so young and naive that there were so many things that went over my head. Thank God. But then there was some big stuff that, you know, I experienced all kinds of crazy things and it does make you grow up quickly and it does make you maybe, you know, gives you a little bit of baggage that maybe a teenager shouldn't have to carry around. But here and now, I don't know, I think I have been very lucky in a way to sort of dodge some big bullets in my life and to make, you know, even the struggles 
again, bringing it back to always viewing things on the sunny side up. I will be damned if I don't see life that way. You know, I mean, I really always choose to err on the positive. It might be annoying to some, but that's okay with me because I have to see the best in things. So when I reflect now, yes, I've definitely experienced some very big challenges in life and being a model very young in an industry that doesn't necessarily treat teenagers with the care and compassion and protection that they need. I really, like I said, I dodged many bullets, so to speak, but I've come out. Okay. So, (laughs) you know, and if I've got wisdom to impart, it's more that I feel like it's a responsibility of mine now to help make the fashion industry a lot more ethical and a lot more responsible in its treatment of young women, especially. And as a mother now, like I said, my life is very different that I can not necessarily say to my kids, hey, you're okay, off you go, leave the house at 16. That's definitely not what's going to happen. <laughs> right. Even if Henry wanted to be a troubadour and take his craftwork nope. cover <laughs> band out on the road, you know? <laughs> I don't know. I think Henry's going to, I highly doubt that will happen. I think more Henry is probably going to be like a very cool science nerd, which I really hope. (laughs) That would be great. That's awesome. Well, those experiences uh, (laughs) that you've had, we're all in the pursuit of art and self-expression, you know, at least for the most part. And so that's great. And you do face challenges along the way. I mean, there's nothing in life that doesn't come without its challenges. And look, there are definitely things that can improve in the fashion industry for sure. I think, Leaving home at 16 and traveling the world, while it was an incredible experience, yes, there's so many things that need to to happen in the fashion industry. So the things that happen to me don't happen to another young woman. I mean, God, you know, Scarlett lived alone in Tokyo, age 16. Uh, She wouldn't be alone. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> you'd be wearing all sorts of disguises and lurking, right? Watching. From the... She just wouldn't be in Tokyo. Let's oh. put it that way. It wouldn't be. <laughs> from modeling, we turn our attention to your music career. Now, one of the big blind spots for me was the Citizens Band. Now, I had been largely unfamiliar yeah. with this, but this is one of your first, what do you call it? Toe in the water, maybe, to the music business. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the Citizens Band? There's some famous alumni of this thing, as well as yourself, Zoe Duchanel and Zoe Kravitz. Amazing. Yeah, so these were just all my friends in New York. And it was the post-tragic 9-11, obviously, that just rocked the entire world and really showed as a collective. It just brought me and my friends together in a way creatively, where we felt like the spirit of cabaret really was a way of humorously and poetically sort of talking about the challenges that we face both in this country and globally. And it started out, honestly, just as a group of sort of kooky friends. We'd all get together in my friend Sarah Sophie Flicker's loft. We'd sing some songs and we thought, wow, maybe we should perform this somewhere. And there was a gallery called Deitch Galleries that no longer exists, but was in New York at the time who just offered us some time and the space to perform. And it really started there. And it was just a group of like-minded individuals who had a flair for the dramatic, let's put it (laughs) that way. (laughs) Some of us could sing, some of us could not. Um, Some people could dance, some like myself could not. Um, There was, you know, just a lot of collective talent. Thank you. 
was honestly we all really felt passionate about the certain things that we did and wanted to contribute and felt a real pull towards sort of the cabaret narrative and it was a way of sort of communicating things that were happening in the world during that time and to poetically and humorously express it and then it kind of turned into something you know because always you start something and you have no idea like my philosophy is, I don't think anybody who's become a success ever walks into it saying, I am going to be successful. That is my reason and motivation for doing it. It's always the unexpected successes are the ones that have become more substantial in a way because you're not walking into it with that yeah. sort of narrative. And we just, we were just kids and we just were having fun with each other. And it became, like I said, it became this sort of New York staple, you know, it became an extravaganza. I had a friend couple of friends who were aerialists and they would perform aerial numbers while say I would sing or we'd perform dance numbers together. And it was such a great group of people. There was this incredible woman called Ronan, who was a drama teacher at this prestigious drama school called LaGuardia in New York. Then there was my friend Ian Buchanan, who was a soap actor. He was in (laughs) Days of Our Lives for many years. Then you have Zoe Deschanel, who is the legendary Zoe Deschanel, but, you know, kind of before she'd even started she and him she'd just done elf and zoe kravitz who was still a teenager at that time and we were all just we were all connected to each other be it knowing each other personally or knowing other people and it just was very natural very fun we absolutely loved it but then you know once we all started um dare i say this like i moved to nashville had children sarah flicker now has three kids and moved more into sort of the political activism realm Zoe Kravitz I mean it was before she'd even acted in a film you know we all kind of it helped us all grow into the things that we really are passionate about and it was really like a great breeding ground for us to evolve our sort of certain gifts and talents. She and him fan. Hearing I love th- Zoe. She's so wonderful. She's and her and yeah. Ward are beautiful. Mm-hmm. And she created like a new genre of music. It right. almost, there's something <laughs> about, well, not a new genre, but, you know, it is that sort of like, whenever I listen to She and Him, it's almost like I can see like a Super 8 movie, uh, you know, a, a beautiful <laughs> like vintage car and can just hear like shades of Karen Carpenter. And then yes. you've got yeah. Matt's beautiful guitar playing and, there's this wistfulness to it's, their music that it, it's just so beautiful, easy on the ear as well. There's a sweet sadness to it. It's very sweet. And there it, is. And, and I really love the sweet sadness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was so fortunate. I got to see them before the pandemic. I saw them Christmas time last year. And I'd been a fan for so long that it was just so gratifying to see them. Right. And they're so beautiful live. Yeah. They're so beautiful live as well. I mean, Zoe's such a phenomenal performer. Her voice is so beautiful. 
It's incredible, yeah, and and uh, so that's really cool. I did not realize there was that connection there. You're connected to so many artists that I love, so it makes sense that I enjoy your music just as much as I enjoy theirs. Your career gravitationally got pulled into the orbit of the music world, I guess, in that mid two thousands time frame. And you know, one of the right. first times that we James and I would have seen you certainly was in the Blue Orchid video for the White Stripes in two thousand five. Right. I, I was right. wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that shoot. There's a lot of cool costumes there. There's a horse going on that looks like it's going to trample you at one point. Were you safe, Karen? Is what I, I ate know. a poison apple at some point. I mean, it's it's so. Did you learn dressage? <laughs> and then I got married after that video. So there you go. There you I mean. Go. Yeah. <laughs> There's so there's so many interesting parts to that video, but Gloria Sigismondi, I mean, what an incredibly talented director. It was actually Jack who asked me to be in the video. So how Jack and I met was through David Swanson, Whirlwind Heat, David Swanson. So he knew my neighbor in New York and he I just known him casually for like six months or so. And he sent me a message like, hey, would you mind if I gave my friend your number because he wants you to be in his music video? And I was like, sure, give me give me your friend, give your friend my number. <laughs> and <laughs> it turned out to be Jack. And Jack called me up and asked if I'd be in a music video. I said, of course I will. But it was quite funny. Is that at the same time, my God, Marilyn Manson had just asked me to be in a, like not a music video, but he was doing like an Alice in Wonderland or trying to do like a short film or a film of Alice in Wonderland. And he wanted me to film at the same time as the Jack video. And I said, I am going to do the White Stripes music <laughs> video. And I'm not going to do that, which I think to this day, he kind of holds me a little like, you know, <laughs> the last time I bumped into Marilyn Manson, he was like, you didn't do that. And I'm like, sorry. <laughs> but yes. So then I did the music video and it was it was beautiful and obviously it was my first time meeting in person jack and meg and you know seeing like it was so beautiful that video what else what can i say it was so poetic it was so moving yeah. gloria is such a a dynamic artist you saw you know firsthand what a formidable performer jack is and i you know jack is also a great actor too i mean i, I would love just saying putting this out into the ether i think jack is I don't know. I think he'd be great doing more films and whatnot. He really is. Just he gets it. You know, he he's just good in front of a, a camera and performing, as we all know. Yeah. It was. It was. What can I say? Like, there's so many things that sort of <laughs> happened during that music video that me and Jack felt a connection and went with that connection, so to speak. Uh-huh. And it was just powerful and really symbolic, I guess, too. Definitely has plenty of experience acting at what age eight in the Rosary Murders. I think is is his start of, the, know, of his film career. <laughs> Isn't that so sweet? Oh my god, it's so funny. I remember actually we were like channel surfing many years ago, 
and that was on TV. And no it was way. like right at the moment where his scene, his scene was on. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> you could definitely feel like that during that that music video again, like the symbolism and how, but also how involved Jack is. He is not a wallflower in his career whatsoever. Jack is really the creator and Jack is that rare breed of artists who is also an impeccable, like he understands imagery, obviously. He understands the poetry and the symbolism behind imagery. He's also a phenomenal businessman and a great songwriter and, and clearly like one of the best guitar players of our generation. So it was interesting to see all these things at play during the making of this video on top of Gloria's just genius as a director. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite parts though of that video is when Meg's, I think she's playing like the drums with like bones or something yeah. like that. I think there's <laughs> at one point and I just, I love that part of her on the swing. It was just such a beautiful experience, obviously. Yeah. Meg is great in that video. Me and Paul were she watching is. that the other day and we were both saying like, oh man, this is amazing. Meg was really, was really acting it up. We loved it. It was great. It, it was yeah. beautiful. Briefly staying in the White Stripes realm, going to Icky Thump, we've heard that your first memory ever was of the Rag and Bone Man walking up and down the street. Can you (laughs) you tell us a little bit about that and how it may have evolved into uh, the song? So um, I I think, you know, even Icky Thump, like it's an expression my dad would use, like it's a Northern English expression. Like, you know, when people be like, oh, heck, in America, it's Icky Thump in a specific (laughs) part of Northern England or Ecky Thump, you know, like yeah. it, it's just an expression. Ecky Thump with a lump in my throat, grab a coat, and I was freaking, I was ready to go. Yeah, swim beside the head, she had one white eye, one blank stare, looking up, lying there. But then with the Rag and Bone Man, like I, I specifically remember it being probably like two and a half, three and the sun's rising. And I, I mean, I still see it so clearly and hearing Rag and Bone, you know, I mean, I <laughs> have to remember, I am like 41 years old. So I am relatively ancient these days. So I can remember these moments. And I, I think I remember telling, I believe telling, you know, Jack about that. You know, you, as you do, you start talking about your childhood and your memories and whatnot. And clearly that resonated with him. And it, the, you know, icky thump resonated with him. And I think maybe getting a crash course in sort of Northern English colloquialisms, you know, and, and, and my family yeah. <laughs> may have influenced some of those things. I mean, I don't want to take credit for that at all because I can't because Jack, like any artist, you know, you listen to sort of things that people say and you mine them into your, you know, you mine these sort of things and create them into your own vernacular. But, you know, I definitely hear the Northern England influence <laughs> throughout that record, for sure. <laughs>
like the the pearly king and queen, you know, like yeah. <laughs> you know that whole that whole moment of what was it? Yeah, oh God, what was his name? Three quid. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 that's right. That's and, right. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> oh my God. Well, from inspiring songs and starring in videos, we move toward fleshing out your own music in a big way. We want to talk a little bit about the genesis of the Ghost Who Walks era a little bit. The way I was describing your music, I was trying to summarize, how would I describe this sound? I don't even know how to describe my own music, by I, the way. <laughs> it's tough. I mean, well, so I was thinking, okay, this is like if Mary Hopkin was some kind of badass cowboy. I don't know if they allow cowboys in Wales, but to, to be determined there. They do. Uh, they do. They okay, do. Good. They do. They, they, they allow cowboys in. Uh, I mean, the British version of a cowboy is it's a much more extreme. It's so funny. I remember I'm really sidetracking right now, but I remember going to this event in London a few years ago that was based. It was like a night of country. And they asked me, like, well, what do people in Nashville look like? And I showed up to the event and I'm like, we are not all gathering around the hay barrels in our like plaid check shirts with cowboy boots. And I'm like, that's definitely not what is happening. But it made me. Hold on. I got to change real quick. Hold on. (laughs) (laughs) But sorry, my cat Fergus is like crawling all over me right now. Excuse me. Um, But there is sort of with my music, I think also being British and sort of taking, especially with the ghost who walks, I think. During that time, I was listening to a lot of, you know, Nick Cave and PJ Harvey and getting, you know, the Gun Club and yeah. there's certain songs in the Gun Club that feel very haunted folk songs, you know, with a little bit of a kind of Southern Gothic kind of Americana leaning, but not really. But there's, it was my version of that, not sure. being from these places. It was almost like Jack when him and Meg were three quid and penny farthing. You know, it's like your interpretation <laughs> of what British people are. In a way, it was like my British interpretation of what the music I love, me interpreting it in my way. But getting to the genesis of the ghosty walks, I mean, again, and it all sounds implausible, but it's all very true. You know, I would like hide in a closet <laughs> and would, it was my only place. I mean, granted, it was a nice size closet. So, sure. you know, <laughs> after having kids, it was like one of the few places in my house where it was like peace and quiet and I could mm-hmm. escape. And I'd just sit and play the guitar and just try and write a song. And I guess there were moments where Jack would come in and, listen and eventually he was like what are you doing why are you not showing me playing these songs i think at first he was like huh piece by piece he was building a recording studio around you (laughs) probably but i think his his, you know and i I sort of expressed like well i don't know why i'm not sharing these songs with you but really it's just to do with me feeling insecure and also not wanting to take advantage. You know, all of a sudden, you know, I'm in a relationship with him. We're married. We have two kids and he is who he is that I, I don't know. Maybe sometimes I give too much credence for what other people think that I was giving at that moment in time, too much credence to that thinking, Oh my God, if I make a record and he is part of it, instantly everyone's going to be laughing like oh his wife you know she only married him so he could do this to her you know like you know how cruel people can be and how misunderstanding a person can be of a person's intention so I almost purposely was like I don't want him to be any part of my music because we have our relationship 
that I value separately to all of these things. But Jack, of course, music is in every part of facet of every element of his life was like, right. oh, shush. <laughs> <laughs> going into the studio and in a way it was the final push that I needed you know and again yeah. it's his practicality and the way he approaches music that actually was the thing that I needed yeah the thing that I needed the final push to get where I needed to make a record and I was grateful for him with that because again it was no nonsense like any insecurities I had I had to check at the door you know I, yeah, I, yeah. I couldn't bring them into the studio Jack as a way he'd like set up the mic he'd be like there you go you're going to play the guitar and sing and I'm going to play drums or this person's going to play on this thing. And there was moments where I could barely hear myself and I'd be like, Hey, can you like turn me up a little bit? And he's like, no, just, he's like, this is how you do things. You just roll with it. And, but it's great. It was just what I needed. It was like throwing me in the deep end and teaching me how to swim. And it absolutely worked. And I will forever be indebted to Jack. For that because if it wasn't for him I don't know if I would have had the confidence truly so he I really have to give him full credit for even getting my music career off the ground in the first place the birds they circle in the sky all the birds they circle in the sky the birds they circle in the sky for all the blood red tears I've cried Oh, the birds, they circle in the sky. Well, from writing songs in a closet, I'm assuming it's evolved since then, <laughs> unless you've made a closet in the recording studio to write your songs in. Oh my God, that's so funny. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of evolved. It's kind of evolved since then. I mean, I still like naturally like all the, you know, like I like to be alone in my house. Yeah. I like to not have anyone in my space while I'm working on music. It definitely, I feel much kind of safer to, to kind of work on the initial idea myself and then I'll bring it to the collective, so to speak. <laughs> and and it, <laughs> right. it seems to work out for me that way. But again, like I said, especially with the Ghost Two Walks, it was such a joy because the, the people who played on the album were all people who were in my life and it was so nice to have everybody's support, even post then, you know, everyone's still very supportive of my music. And sometimes you can view something as this behemoth, yeah. like, oh my God, I'll never be able to do something. It's so overwhelming. And then when you do it, you go, oh, that wasn't as scary as I imagined. And maybe I can do this more. I wish I was a bit more like Jack in that way, where Jack, like I said, he can just spit out an album, you know I mean? He gives him a week and he can create a masterpiece. Like <laughs> my process is much more, it takes longer. I have to be like super quiet and feel like in an introverted state of mind. Like obviously how long Double Roses took. It takes a lot for me to kind of get my confidence up again and then feel like, okay, I can do it. You know, yeah. it, it, it can take a minute. Right. But that's okay too. That's my way. I have to not be judgmental of it. That's just the way I do things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe it, with an album like Ghost Two Walks, it was a case where you were complimenting each other in that way. He is known for split-second decisions, not poorly thought-out decisions in that sense, but... Never uh, poorly thought-out decisions. He's, you know, he's so well-versed in the studio as well. Like, he knows what he's doing. That, right. Like I said, Jack's real strengths are truly his practicality and, you know, he's fierce, you know? I mean, he, yeah. like, just goes into the studio, picks up a guitar, and you're, you're kind of jaws on the ground, you know what I mean? Or same as a drummer, like, he's, you know, I mean, obviously, 
you know, Jack is a phenomenal guitar player and we know he's a great drummer, but really he is an amazing drummer. I mean, especially like it was nice to see that for him with the dead weather, like just again, such a force. And that's how he approaches music. But then there are the nuances with Jack too, like the delicacies of his music. And he does give time for them. But what I will say really helped me with the ghost who walks is that he threw me in the deep end and it was a beautiful experience you know you describing jack he strikes me as the kind of guy when you're sitting down at a restaurant he really picks that what he's going to eat quick you know what i mean he strikes me as the kind of guy who's going i'm having the steak dinner not not a long thinker about it just goes right in there and he wants to leave the moment it's finished <laughs> no that's a polish thing that might be a polish yeah, that, thing that's a polish we, we, thing, we tend to keep our jackets on in situations like this um I, so we uh, we love the ghost who walks honestly we could spend the whole day talking about that album because it is so beautiful i wanted to just touch on the personal nature of the lyrics for just a moment you know you're sure i read or maybe I heard you talk in an interview that when you're writing, it's usually about something that's either haunting you or kind of nagging at you and your subconscious. And yeah. you spoke a little bit about your writing methodology earlier in the interview. But for The Ghost Who Walks, when I listened to that album, aside from the beautiful music and the beautiful melody and your gorgeous voice, by the way, one of the things that strikes me is the intensely personal feel about the lyric. And I wonder... Yeah, yeah for sure. When you're putting yourself out there like that, do you find that to be an empowering thing or do you find that to be a nerve wracking thing or maybe both? Both. Both is absolutely the thing. I mean, I think The Ghost Do Walks, that was the very first song I wrote actually for what became the album. Like that was the one Jack kept coming in and listening to while I was in the closet. And that honestly was more just me telling a story. And I don't think to be really blunt, there was too much of myself within it. You know, like truth is in the dirt. That was, it's so funny. Like I read when the legendary Eartha Kitt had passed away and I read her, like an obituary for her that was in the New York Times. And it was some a quote that she said, like something about the truth was being in the dirt. And it just inspired the song. But obviously there was personal stuff to that as well. Like no matter what, no matter like how a person can color things, the truth is always literally in the dirt. And then other songs like pop out, like I said, Stolen Roses that were so deeply personal to my life. The Last Laugh, like I wrote that for my children. That's like a kind of dark lullaby yeah. for my kids, but so tender. You know, that was literally written for Scarlett and Henry as Save the Last Laugh for me. Hush, little darling, don't have any fear. For I'm here to protect you when the stars fall, I'll be near. Little stars are shining up above. You can't help but put a little bit of yourself yeah. in these things. And then there's moments where you don't even realize it's like you start writing, and just the nature, I think, of the subconscious is that there's things start popping up that you go, oh, wow, I didn't realize I needed to analyze this or that this is something that is haunting or bothering me at this moment in time. So, and I think with the ghost who walks, because, you know, also like there's the fear that everyone's going to be reading your lyrics and going, oh, this means this or this means that. So I definitely was mindful to create stories around each 
song. So, it, you know, it's not taken literally, you know, yeah. that there's like universal feelings that we all feel that are in there and that what I'm feeling, but to not take it so literal because especially, you know, it's so easy for people to go, oh, well, this song is about this thing or that thing. And it's sometimes not true, but it's about an emotion that I'm right. feeling. Yeah. And, and those emotions are strong in that record. That's funny you say that about the lullaby. I got that impression i was gonna ask you about that because uh it gave me sort of that vibe and funny we're talking beatles john lennon did the same thing for julian at the end of right uh, right the white album so. oh i love i love that song so much yeah and also struggled with fans interpreting meanings from things that were not there <laughs> that's right <laughs> notoriously with uh, lucy and the sky with diamonds i right. think was was one of them but oh I, yeah i love that song so much yeah. What a um, transition. Yeah. <laughs> to some more Beatley run-ins that you've had here. So you've you've done oh, I love a it. few fabulous cover tunes, like amazing, including Season of the Witch, which me and Paul are big Donovan fans. Oh, uh, I love so, Season of the Witch. Yeah. That song, just anyway, I just love <laughs> that song. And I, again, just even like the drums that Jack, you know, is playing and then he's putting it through this incredible piece of equipment that I can't remember, but I was obsessed with it for so long. It was like this little like reverb echo just device that the drums through that, my vocal through that. Oh, love it. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> when I look out my window, many sights to see. It is amazing. We love that cover so much. But uh, one that also jumps out to us is Crying, Waiting, Hoping on the Buddy Holly tribute album. Uh, sorry, it's my son. Uh, if if that's bleeding through. I do <laughs> Don't worry. I'm so familiar with these sounds. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how are you approached for this compilation? Um, God, I'm trying to remember. Uh, so the music supervisor, Randy Poster, who does a lot of film soundtracks and not just soundtracks, but like placements of songs and beautiful films. I think he was um, executive producing that album, yeah. the Buddy Holly album, and asked me to do it. And I um, obviously, you've got like in-house producer back in the day, you know. So mm -hmm. Jack was like, "Sure, let's let's do this." And again, I think I probably sang the song three times. We were there probably <laughs> two hours maximum in the studio. And once we got sort of the rhythm of the song, and that was really important was sort of like the gallopy, you know, like the, the gallopy rhythm to that song in general. Once we nailed that, it was what it was. I sang the main vocals, sang some harmonies, did a few little overdubs of music. And it was a truly, you know, again, as what Jack thrives as both as a producer and as an artist in his own right, is he really captures the essence of like the live performance. And it, it really was like that, just with a few sprinkles of colors and whatnot here and there musically. Crying, crying, waiting, waiting, hoping, hoping you come back. You're the one I love and I think about you all the time. On 
top of all of that, you get to appear on the record with Sir Paul McCartney, which how cool is that? I know, <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, it's just like when you, I saw the sort of artists who were all contributing to that, it was like a pinch me moment. Whenever I'm on things that all these great people are, I'm going to be honest, the first thing is like imposter syndrome where I'm like, wow, do I deserve to be on this? But always just grateful, you know? I mean, I mean, put that syndrome to bed because of the three of us, there's only one of us that can say they were on a record with Paul McCartney. So that's, that's you. And it's, it's great. We okay, don't know about another Dallas. Another one for the tombstone. That's Thank true. you. <laughs> yes. Well, did, did you actually, did you wind up meeting him at the White House? I've, I've met Paul McCartney a number of times. So I know his two, two daughters, Mary and Stella, quite well. And Stella. I've met the brilliant Sir Paul a number of times. And he's a brilliant guy. So personable. So everything that you would imagine. Yes, Jack and I went to the White House. Jack did such a moving performance there. It was a, another pinch me moment. You know, Paul is Paul. Paul is everything you would imagine <laughs> he is. He is just such a cool, awesome Again, just it's so it's such a testament, like what a grounded just is so relatable. And God, how do you make that work after yeah. <laughs> that many years in the limelight and that many years being that person? But right. he, he is just got such a sort of like a sweetness and a earthiness to him that is just so beautiful. That's amazing. In the video of that White House performance, it's so cool because when Jack starts playing Mother Nature's Son and then into that would be something you could see him tapping his you could see him kind of getting into it and like enjoying yeah. why Jack maybe chose those songs. I, we know he's a big fan of that first album, but um, and Jack's also a big fan of like Ram as well. You know, I mean, I, he loves that record. I mean, I can't tell you how many times we've listened to that song as well, and particularly just like going on road trips and whatnot. I mean, it's amazing. Again, I think you know Jack from a songwriter perspective has so much like admiration for Paul McCartney and. And I can't speak for him, obviously, on those things. But from what I gather, he has a deep admiration for all things Paul McCartney in general. Yeah, well, we have the new McCartney 3 coming I up. know. How amazing yeah. is that? Come on. Right? I Third saw Man. that. I was like, wow. We were getting texts. drop Third Man Records. <laughs> we were getting texts from, like, family that we just never hear from. They're like, your two things are doing a thing at one time. We're like, we know. <laughs> we're freaking out. <laughs> Um, we have some so questions funny. for Ben That's Blackwell. So <laughs> uh, oh my God, for sure. Yeah, but uh, the Rayvon compilation wasn't obviously your only musical running in the Beatley sphere. You and Danny, we had the George Fest in 2014. Yeah, and, you, you performed... and I've known Danny for a very long time. So Danny and I, um, when I was 19, we met when I was 19 because my first boyfriend and Danny were friends in college and very close friends. So we would hang out all the time. And Danny always stayed like, a, you know, a person I was in contact with. And when he was doing George Fest, asked me to be a part of, of that. And I was like, of course. I mean, wow. Danny is such a sweetheart and such a good human. Seriously, like one of those rare breeds of people who is just so decent and kind and brilliant. And I got to give all those Beatles credit. They've all raised some <laughs> fine children. They raised some fine children. Yeah. Yes. And the new number two is is wonderful. His music is fantastic. So exactly. Danny's just really such an overwhelmingly like interesting, kind, grounded, good soul. So it was a pleasure to be a part of that. An sure. absolute pleasure. I mean, yeah. there's moments where you're, you know, artists were performing there that there were so many pinch me moments as well.
we swear we didn't get you here just to talk about the Beatles. I apologize, but uh, <laughs> you could do that. But let's talk a little bit about your follow up to the Ghost Who Walks. We got 2017's Double Roses LP, which yes. the title track of that is amazing. There's a Christmas to the production and the instrumentation on the album and that track specifically kind of immediately lets you know that you're in a different place in your life. And the songwriting is in a different yeah. place too. What is the genesis of that track? Well, you know, I think with Double Roses, it, God, it was such a labor of love. Like the way the ghosty walks just very spontaneous and happened where Double Roses was like, God, am I going to get this done? Can I get this done? Will I get this done? And, you know, Jonathan Wilson produced that album. And it was very clear from when we started making Double Roses that, you know, the instrumentation, again, like I think about PJ Harvey, for instance, is there ever been two PJ Harvey records that sound the same? You know, so I was really going from that mentality that I'd done the Ghost Who Walks and I'd already achieved that, you know, and that I didn't want to make another record that sounded the same. So the production was obviously very, very different, very much more elaborate, but it felt right for those songs. Like, you know, the opening track, Wonder Blind with the harp, then moving onwards into the album, you know, especially with Double Roses, where it's got like, just there's so many instruments during this album. I think at one point when when Jonathan like has the tubular belts where I'm like, are we going a little too far now? Like (laughs) why do you say that? I was listening to it again the other day and I was and they kept creeping up on me. I was like, oh my God, what what is that? A flugelhorn? What (laughs) exactly what what are all these instruments? But again, but it was it really called for it as well. And the sort of album in a way was a bit more melancholy and a bit more wistful. I think the instrumentation also brings that sweetness into it all again and brings that sort of, you know, soundtracky quality to it. Hey, love, it's the end of an era. Time isn't on our side. As the clock ticks, I'm seeing things clearer. Tender hearts were made to wander blind. Speaking of production, I know Jonathan, obviously, Jonathan played drums on most of it, minus one, which Father John Misty played drums on. But with Jonathan's drumming, he's clearly so influenced by the Beatles, like sonically as well. I mean, I've always been so lucky to work with such great producers who really understand the sound of things, even if it's on like different ends of the spectrum. But Jonathan, just he's got a delicate touch as a producer. And even though we're throwing everything at the wall, when things were mixed in place, it all seemed to sort of fit and elevate these sort of lush, moving songs and help make it feel at times lighter, help make it give so many colors to it. I mean, we recorded probably 23 songs. I probably one day should release all the B-sides to <laughs> yeah, some yes. of the B-sides Please. from Please. Double Roses just <laughs> because there's just so many of them and it's always really annoying to have them just Occasionally when I'm like out on a run, I'm like, oh yeah, I recorded this song. It's never seen the light of day. I probably should put it out there sometime. But yes, it was a transitionary period 
of my life. But the record, I think, you know, again, and I shouldn't give too much credence to this, but it's so easy for everyone to read into everything that you do as this is about this thing, this is about the other, that I took my time with Double Roses because I really, you know, I didn't want to make a, a, an album right after Jack and I had split that could lead to like assumptions or false assumptions, you know, that I was in my life going through many transitionary periods in general, not just, you know, a split there was so many things that were going on and it really was, I wouldn't say every song is colored by that, but I would say there was a real sort of like heart yearning period of my life where the songs really like tapped into some deep themes, you know? And also yeah. I felt like during this period of time, I grew up so much. I became sure. sort of almost like standing on my own two feet in a way, which isn't an easy thing to do, but a powerful thing to do. Right. Yeah. Come Hell or High Water is a gorgeous cut on that record. I love uh, that. My, I, I love that song. Yeah, it's great. Because that song was one of the first I actually was, maybe the first I actually wrote for Double Roses. And actually, I remember actually playing that one for Jack. I just, I actually wrote that. He has this little um, den in his house, kind of like his man cave. <laughs> and I, um, <laughs> in there, and I wrote that song one of those magical moments where a song just comes to you in like 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. And I remember playing it for him afterwards. And, I, you know, I remember him like being so touched by that song. You know, I think the lyric, like I close my eyes, drown in salt water. He was like, Oh my God, you know, <laughs> and we'd already split, but you know, like, God, Jack is incredible. Jack is in, like, in my life. We've got two incredible kids. Like there's moments where we can really share those creative moments with each other, which I'm grateful for. moments where I was like yeah this might be a song this may be the beginning of my next record and he throughout the process of Double Roses is always supportive and kind of at moments where I was dragging my feet again even though he wasn't the producer <laughs> always was like when are you going to make that second record you know I mean <laughs> yeah. like pushing me along the way which I appreciate yeah well it came out beautifully so thank you for all the music we hope there's some more Music coming down the pike. We do have a rapid fire who wore it better, the US or the UK game that might take a. Okay, let's do it. Let's do yeah, it. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> Okay. All right. Uh, breakfast. UK England, or US? Always. Which English is breakfast. Yes. <laughs> okay. UK, UK. You don't like the sweet, the loaded with sugar breakfast? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no, I love a full English. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Chocolate. UK, hands down. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Uh, Maltesers, crunchy, dairy uh, milk. I mean, okay. we, we don't use high fructose corn syrup, and it always tastes better without that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> gardens. Say that again? Gardens. Oh, God, I thought you said gummies. I was like, yummy. <laughs> also like, gummies, gardens, yeah. Sure. English gardens. Okay. Uh, I was like, UK, UK. Sorry, you're seeing where this is going, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. All right, how about cheese? Mm, 
probably have to say UK again. Jeez, all right. Well, we're losing poorly <laughs> over here. All right. So, I'm sorry. Cheddar and like the British cheddar. Ooh, so good. <laughs> Public walking. Okay. <laughs> you have you have those like backyard walk spaces between people's houses. I get it. I guess. Yeah, yeah. All right. How about lakes? Ooh, I think the U.S. has probably finer, more vast lakes. But then, if we're really getting real, no, we've got to think about like the Scottish lakes. Oh, for heaven's sake! Oh man, the locks. No, you can't compete with like you know a, a Scottish lock. <laughs> okay, imperialism. <laughs> oh God. Well, since the, you know, oh, God, who knows these days? We'll see how the election goes. But, you know, the UK has a queen. We have the queen. I love the queen. So, the UK. How about theme parks? Uh, I bet the US probably has better theme parks than the UK. UK, it's like a rinky-dinky little a rinky dinky little thing you know i mean yeah the u.s although i hate roller coasters so you'll never see me on one <laughs> all right uh, i'm scared of heights i'm so scared of heights it's it's awful <laughs> well uh we'll, we'll go back to gummies here non-chocolate candy <laughs> the uk oh my ah. god flying saucers if you've not heard of what flying saucers are oh they're so good or <laughs> sherbet dip dabs only a british yeah. person will know what that is digestive biscuits ginger yeah. nut biscuits forget it i mean don't even get me started on the british <laughs> sweet. the sheer tenacity to call a delicious food a digestive biscuit is <laughs> it's my favorite thing it's so good yeah. it's like we have know, hydrox I know. cookies it's so, it's so british it's, my wife will be happy to hear that she is a round tree. Oh, round trees, yeah. Oh, yeah, jelly babies. You would, oh, yeah. you know, eat the feet. Eat, I mean, just the idea that you're, like, eating a baby in itself is really morbid, <laughs> but there you go, it's written for you, but yeah. there you go. <laughs> All right, how about community events? Community events, my God. Hmm, that's a tough one, because I think my community in Nashville is incredible. So I'm going to, like, have to give that to... Wow the u.s but it's very singular to my experience in nashville sure now this one's kind of stacked in in the uk's favor because you guys created your own church but christianity <laughs> who wore it better oh boy <laughs> uh, can i say neither okay fair enough fair enough yeah we'll leave that out that's fine <laughs> wait, wait wait but the uk has the vicar of dibley so uk wins Oh, this is true. And also, you know, like, if you think about, like, Little Britain, isn't there, isn't there a, 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 I'm not sure, maybe I'm getting that confused, but, you know, a a comedic vicar in Britain, like, from any comedy show, like, I'll take that kind of religion any day. There you go. Father (laughs) Ted, it's all great. Yeah, exactly. Each to their own. you got to believe what you got to believe in. (laughs) Last one, workers' rights. Oh, boy. Not to get all political for you on the last one. (laughs) (laughs) Well... I think, you know, I'm going to have to go with the UK because, you know, we have like free healthcare in the UK and that has, there's a lot less privatization in the UK of things. And I think in the US, there's so much privatization of sort of the basics, but such a shame that I, I wish in America we had free healthcare for everybody. That would be such an incredible yeah. thing for the community. And I know that's not necessarily workers, but it does have a an impact, you know, oh, yeah. like if you're sick in yeah. The UK, you can go to a doctor and it won't cost you a ton of money. And that means you can probably go back to work sooner or you're not being in debt. It has a big trickle down effect on society as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. 
we're really uh, jealous of uh, having an NHS at this point. So uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people in the in Great Britain, a lot of people complain about the NHS, and you know, sometimes it's understandable. But at least you know, you break your leg, it's going to get fixed, and you're not going to be paying for it. Karen. Thank you so, so, so much for joining us today. As you can tell, we are big fans of yours and we just really appreciate you making the time. Again, the Red Flame on sale now. Thank you so much. You're incredible. More music, please. Not at all. Thank you so much. It was, uh, there's definitely going to be more. Stay tuned for sure. Awesome. Great. We look forward to it. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you guys. And um, I'm sure, you know, maybe I'll pass across post pandemic, but. Yeah, thank you again for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, our pleasure. Thank you so much. We had a blast talking with Karen Elson. Thank you, Karen, so much for joining us on the show. It was wonderful having you here and... We were just surprised that you wanted to talk to us and very (laughs) happy that you did want to talk to us. So anyway, that was so much fun. Everybody go pick up The Red Flame that's available now wherever you buy books. It's available on Amazon. It's available at Barnes & Noble. Have it delivered to your place of residence. Again, The Red Flame on sale now. And we also have some other people we would Mm -hmm. like to thank, James. There's some people we'd like to thank from our Patreon who are helping support the show, such as, and I'll do a reverse order today, why not? We've got Ashley Forbes, Steady Ashley Goes. We've got Shane Ben Jamson, the Shane boy you've always known. Melinda Endress, you look pretty in your fancy Endress. Elizabeth Myers, rolling in on a burning Myers. We've got Brett Garski, the Brett 3 killed my Garski. Yvette Wilkins, Wilkin on Sunshine. Brenda Inglehart, we want to be the boys to warm your Inglehart. Kate McCoy, the bones of the operation. Stu Cat or Stu Driver. Julia Hickling, the $3 hat make, Melinda Taylor, sorry, Melinda Taylor, <laughs> or Melinda Taylor, send me an angel down. We've got Josh Aiken or Joe Shaken all over, Luke Sinclair or Luke Me Over Closely, Tam Davis, our third person in spirit every week, Michael Brookfield or Bone Brookfield, and we've got Derek Ferguson or Forever Ferguson. <laughs> yeah, and if you would like to donate to the show, it can be as much or as little as you can swing there is an ad at the end of the show that will tell you how to do that. So, you know, please do if you're able. If you're not, that's fine, too. We're just happy to be here doing this. And as we mentioned every week, it's just for the love of music. So mm-hmm. if you would like to get in touch with us through other means, you can head to Facebook.com slash Third Men. You can go to our Twitter at Third Mencast. Our Tumblr, which is uh, slightly more updated than last time, <laughs> thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com. You can head to our website thirdmenpodcast.com shoot us an email thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com our instagram handle is at the third men underscore podcast and that's where i put up pictures from the different shows that we do and we've had some lovely fan interactions on the instagram Mm -hmm. and actually found out that some people found us through the instagram some people found the show that way and well that's uh always you know it's a nice thing to hear it is you know it's always very nice to hear when people find the show different ways. And a lot of you have found us through uh, the Instagram. We've also been talking to Margo Price a bunch on the Instagram for <laughs> yeah. some reason. So that's good too. That's wild. Yeah. If you'd like to buy some merch, head to bit.ly slash third men merch. James personally does all of the artwork that is on the shirts and cheese boards and other assorted ephemera in there. 
Yeah, and he does a marvelous totally. job on those. I've got a shirt. I've got a rag and bone shirt that James made. You can also get your podcast not dead shirt, and I'll be looking for a home shirt. Get it on a mug. I don't care where you plaster it, but plaster it somewhere for God's sakes. Yeah, you know, just plaster it. Literally, buy some plaster of Paris. Just bl- buy plaster. Plaster it onto your wall. Onto your wall, and you can. There's there's wall art clings and stuff too i don't know they got tons of stuff on there i don't i don't know you can search the show on youtube that's youtube.com slash c slash the third men podcast and there's all sorts of fun animations and a couple episodes on there too in fact i was looking at the numbers the other day boy james there's a lot of there's a lot of listens on some of those episodes but we haven't really posted on there for a while because we kept getting dinged <laughs> yeah dinged all the time paul our show is hosted by Acast. Thank you, Acast. I love you. Like to Acast. Start a <laughs> you'd like to start a podcast? Try Acast. You know why not? The Kaminsky family of podcasts recently had a an addition. I mean, I produce the show. It's not really starring us or anything, but that's being done through Acast too. That would be the Lucy and Annabelle show. So that's a little plug for that show there. If you'd like to listen to Lucy Walsh, daughter of Joe Walsh from the Eagles, or Annabelle Jones, daughter of Davy Jones from the Monkees, talk about life as celebrity kids and their own music and struggles and journeys. It's a really interesting show. We would encourage everybody to check that out. That's the Lucy and Annabelle show. And ACAST hosts that one, too. ACAST is wonderful. We love ACAST. James wants to bang it. James wants to take his ding-dong and bang it. Well, anyway... rate review and subscribe uh, on Apple Podcasts wherever there's a button that says rate review or subscribe please do that you can find an easy way to do that by going into your browser and typing rateus.thirdmenpodcast.com mm-hmm. and you know sometimes we do listener questions we've actually got a list I'm looking at the damn list here we've got a few we've got more than a few we've got enough for an episode we probably we could oh, we could really just do that but um, we should run down these with blackwell or something maybe or we could just keep saying we're gonna do one and never do it like we usually do um <laughs> yeah so, so you could send us a listener question to any of the things i just said there that's right and we'd also like to thank sam Kubert and tom valenti for the help with our theme song we're the third man, as well as susanna roundtree for the wonderful intros and outros to our program thank you susanna and Paul, I think that's going to do it for this spectacular episode. It might. It might just do it. So I'll be looking for a home as the co-star to Julianne Moore's latest film, I Punched a Velociraptor in the Velociraptor 1. It's kind of a mashup of the Buddy Holly story starring Gary Busey and the Lost World Jurassic Park. <laughs> but Gary Busey plays Ian Malcolm's son instead of the late, instead of the girl, the little girl. Yeah. And Julianne Moore and Gary Busey have to fight velociraptors. But in this version, you see the velociraptors eviscerate them both. And then the velociraptor takes Gary Busey's teeth. And he has Gary Busey teeth. And then in Jurassic Park 3, in this side Kelvin universe of Jurassic Park, the the, the velociraptor can still talk to Dr. Grant on the plane, but he talks with now like Gary Busey. And he goes, he's, ah, you know, and um, at the end of that film, he's shot and killed. And I will be looking for a home (laughs) with a ghost who talks. Good night. Good night, everybody. We're the third man.
For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. Hey everybody, Paul here with a quick message for you. As James and I mentioned many times on the show, this podcast is 100% not-for-profit and a labor of our love for music. We pride ourselves in bringing you interesting, timely content as we have these past 100-plus episodes. Podcasting is, however, a weirdly expensive process, and we actually lose money on hosting, time, equipment, advertising, and all the other little things that we need to do to make these shows for you. So, to help break even on some expenses like those, James and I have set up a Patreon account where you can, if you like chip in a few bucks to help keep the lights on it can be as much or as little as you can swing and all donations are greatly appreciated the last thing we want to do is hound anybody for cash so just know that listening to our show is always payment enough but if you would like to help us out that would be amazing all right it's all from me remember you can head to patreon.com slash third men podcast and a huge thank you to everyone who's donated already all right everybody i'll see you on the show and i'm wayne kaminsky You are all invited to join us on a magical mystery trip through the lives of the Beatles every week on the Yesterday and Today podcast. This show details the chronological journey of the world's most famous band using music, interviews, and rarities collected since the debut of John, Paul, George, and Ringo onto the world stage. We're a fan-made production and we're available now on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. So sit back, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. (laughs) Pretty sure. Pretty sure it was 2010, right? Yeah, I think so. That sounds right. Can, um, it, can you please include uh, like a lot of clips of George Costanza? Uh, his <laughs> that whole coincidence. Uh, it's not George Costanza. It was Elaine's friend uh, at the at the book place that she worked at, who was going like, "There are no such things as coincidences." It's perfect. Anyway, we'll do, do that. that. Yeah. Did you hear? Did you hear the Stitch and the Spur um, intros and outros? I didn't yet. I saw that you sent them. I, I haven't listened yet. Yeah. Gardens. Say that again. Gardens. Oh God! I thought you said gummies. I was like gummies. <laughs> gummies. Yeah, sure. She's like gardens. Okay. I'm just like. <laughs> oh, that's good.
All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. <laughs>